Okay, let's go ahead and uh, we'll get started. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and your kindness to your people, oh Lord. We thank you, God, that uh, in your wisdom that you spread your gospel throughout this entire world is not confined to one area, one place, one people group, but you have saved people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, O oh Lord. Thank you, God, for your word that you have preserved it so that your people would know of your goodness and kindness to us through our history. We pray, God, that by the aid of your Holy Spirit, we would come to grow and love not only the things that you have done in our heart and our own church, God, but the things that you have done throughout this entire world in human history for the sake of your great name. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. All right, so last week, Brother Jameson, <clears throat> Brother Jameson taught on, well, actually, we are on week three of global Christian history. Why don't we start there? <laughs> week three of global Christian history. La, uh, the first week we did, um, somebody help me out. What was the first week? It's a test. Brazil. I'm just checking to make sure you know. <laughs> first week was Brazil. Last week was India. Brother Jameson taught on the his Christian history in India. And so this week we'll be doing Protestant Christian history in China, in the nation of China. So it's pretty interesting. All these things are interesting. It helps us to see what the Lord has done in other places other than just the United States. It's good for us to know these things, that God, how God moves in different places and some of the unique challenges that they face. And we can even learn from some of these brothers, depending on what those challenges are and what they were. And we can learn how they dealt with them and how we can do the same thing should we find ourselves in similar situations in the future. Um, I'm going to ask you in advance to um, forgive me. I don't have my glasses, so I'm blind. So I'm going to try to read this and get through this as best as possible. So <laughs> I'm asking your forgiveness up front. All right, so <clears throat> if you have your handouts, uh, Roman, we're on the history of Protestant, the Protestant church in China. And so why should we study the history of the church in China? Well, first of all, the reason is, is because Christian history is God's history. We should know about what, our, the, Lord, what the Lord has done you know, what it, um, <clears throat> in the world. When we, every, we open our Bible and we read about the nation of Israel, we're reading redemptive history. We're reading what God has done in, in time, in space, in the past to save his people, establish his church, and glorify his name among men. So in one sense, every time we preach the gospel, we are in touch with human history and what God has done. So history obviously is important. You wouldn't be saved had it not been for Christ dying on the cross. And that, in, in, that is a historical event. So Christianity is bound to history. So we should never be thinking that we should never try to separate history and theology. They are, they are bound together in ways that they are... In, such that, that that makes them inseparable. So history in and of itself is important for us as Christians. Uh, the reason why history is important for China is simply because there are hundreds of millions of God's image bearers in that nation, right? Uh, the, in fact, uh, we are told that somewhere between 70 and 90 million Protestants 
are in China. That numbers um, that some uh, that number was come up with in 2015. I'm certain it's probably higher now. And um, so, and it's an interesting question because the government there is um, an atheistic government. It's an atheistic country, and so it's important to ask the question: How did an atheistic country become home to so many Christians? How did that happen? Right. So secondly, missionaries played a major role in founding and developing the Chinese Protestant church during the first 140 years of um, the establishment of China as a nation. So there is much we can learn from their missionary efforts there. So when did, so let's start with the question, when did the gospel first enter China? When did the gospel first enter China? So if you remember last week when Brother Jameson talked about India. Um, we know that the Apostle Thomas spread the gospel through Indochina, through um, parts of Asia. He went into India. So it's very possible that he might have been in parts of China, right? Obviously, we can't confirm that, but um, it's very possible that he may have visited China in the first century, right? So, but the earliest documented um, introduction of Christian teaching into China that we know of dates back to the 7th century, a period within the Tang Dynasty um, through the efforts of uh, the, um, does anybody know about the uh, Nestorian Christian heresy? You know about this? Okay, so in the 7th century, there was a theologian named Nestorian. He separated um, he ended up becoming, uh, the church deemed him a heretic because he ended up separating Christ's nature from his deity. I mean, his human nature from his divine nature. Separated him completely. So he ended up eventually being deemed a heretic by the church at that time. Well, nevertheless, prior to that, he, that group was very um, heavily missionary they, they believed a lot in doing mission work so they sent missionaries to china so there was a big movement in the seventh century by that particular group into china to preach the gospel and then by the 13th century there was everybody knows who marco polo is right the renowned traveler marco polo in recounting his journey from china to europe he had an association with the emperor, the first emperor, and that emperor requested that there be that they, that that um that there be a hundred Christian scholars come to China. Now, the reason he asked this question, they suppose, is because of the um, association that Kublai Khan had with Christianity. So it's, it's suspected that his mother was actually Christian, right? Now, the extent to her Christianity, what she believed, we can't determine fully, but he was raised and nurtured by a Christian mother, which underscores the presence of these Christians from the seventh century, had some kind of influence in China. We can't exactly determine for certain what that was because none of it is actually documented. But nevertheless, 
when um, Marco Polo traveled, the emperor knew about Christianity and requested that Christian scholars be brought back from you, you know, Europe into China. Now, um, it's suspected that his um, reasons and his motives for wanting these scholars there were more political than they were actually theological. He wanted to have his nation set up in a particular type of way and it was, it's hard to know for certain whether or not his desire to have these scholars there was for their faith or rather than just for their information or knowledge. So it's hard to determine that. Nevertheless, um, there was some kind of Christian presence in China for centuries before Marco Polo got there. That makes sense to you? Am I making sense to you? Okay, good. Um, nevertheless, this, um, the in, so there was some impact of the initial endeavors of missionaries to introduce Christianity into China, and, um, but they appear to be rather limited. And then the tide begins to shift around the 1800s, around the 1800s. So the rest of our time in the uh, class will be dealing with the beginnings of you know, the, Protestant church, the Protestant church in China from the late 1780s to present. All right. So what we see here is, and if you're following along on the handouts, we're on Roman numeral number two. It's the beginning of the Protestant church as we know it. Uh, There's a man named Robert Morrison. Um, by uh, the early 1800s, the Qing dynasty had ruled China for about 150 years at this time. And during this time, China had effectively been closed off to foreigners and especially to Christian missionaries. So foreigners were excluded from most of the interior of the country and evangelism was punishable by death. So yet, despite the fact that there was a, um, the, there was a conspicuous lack of a Protestant church in the country, again, there was some kind of Christian influence there and so there are hundreds of millions of people in Europe began to understand the size of China, the population, and were burdened by the fact that all of these millions of people had, to their estimation, had never heard the gospel before. So it started to drive this desire to spread the gospel into China. So in 1803, a working class British man named Robert Morrison attended the Missionary Academy at Gosport, England, with the goal of moving permanently into China. So upon his graduation, a Chinese man in London tutored him in the Chinese language for two years in London. And this proved to be a remarkable provision that the Lord had given to him because the Qing government forbid its citizens from tutoring or teaching foreigners Chinese, okay? So the fact that he was even able to learn the language was remarkable and uh, providential. So in 1807, <clears throat> 14 years after William Carey had sailed into India, Morrison landed in Macau, which is on the southern coast of China. If you look on the back of your handouts, you can see where Macau is. 
So shortly after his arrival, in September 7th, 1807, Morrison found himself at a crossroads because he was stuck between, do I evangelize or translate the Bible into Chinese? So he had to make a decision because um, as he saw it, evangelism would quickly get him kicked out of the country, but anybody he converted would be without the Bible, would be without scripture. So he, he was having a dilemma about which, which role to take. So within a few months of arriving in China, he began, he decided to translate the Bible into Chinese. That was the decision that he made, was to translate the Bible into Chinese. So for the next 27 years, he began publishing materials in Chinese that would lay a strong foundation for future gospel work. And by the time he died in 1834, Morrison had only baptized 10, Christian, 10 Chinese believers, but his life proved immensely productive because he published the very first systematic grammar of the Chinese language into English, a three-volume Chinese to English dictionary, and 130 catechism questions and a Bible into Chinese. So he did all of that work prior to his death, which was very helpful for the foundation of the church later on. Now, on your handouts, we're on, still on Roman numeral number two, subsection two, which, say, which talks about the uh, first opium war from 1839 to 1842. So during the last decade of Robert Morrison's life, tensions began to rise in China between the British government in the Qing Dynasty over the import of opium from British India. So British India started to import opium into Chinese, into China, I'm sorry, into China. And by the time of Morrison's death, there were over two million Chinese that were estimated to be have to have been addicted to opium at this time. So in 1839, there was, the conflict boiled over what into what became to be known as the First Opium War, okay? So three years later, the British defeated the Chinese and imposed what is called the Unequal Treaties. That's the, the term for the Unequal Treaties. And this document contained two provisions that would alter the course of Christianity in China. So after this war, the First Opium War, the British won, they imposed this treaty called the unequal treaties, and in that treaty, there were two provisions that were critical to Christianity in China. The first was that Christianity became legal. So prior to this, the Chinese government made Christianity illegal, but so because of this war having been fought and lost by the Chinese, this treaty demanded that Christianity become legal. And the second was that five coastal cities, including Shanghai, and Gunghao were open for trade and permanent residence by foreigners was allowed, including missionaries. Okay, that makes sense to you? So Christianity went from being illegal to legal and now foreigners, including missionaries, could legally occupy coastal cities. So for missionary work, this treaty was a mix of, it was a mixed blessing. Because it was helpful because missionaries now had access to parts of China 
and they could obviously spread the gospel there. But the missionaries' association with the opium trade and the fact that this is an occupant, this is a government, a foreign government that's occupying them because they're being associated with the British government, they're being associated with the opium trade, that became a serious obstacle for any kind of missionary work to the people of China. So um, the same treaty that basically opened, or the, yeah, the same treaty that opened up opium into the country and spread the spread of this terrible drug into the country also made it possible that the gospel be spread further as well. So there's a mixed blessing here. Um, so many of the missionaries, uh, they denounced the opium trade, yet nevertheless, total separation from it proved to be nearly impossible because uh, as opium boats, they represented the only means of transportation into, into China. So if you were a missionary and you wanted to go to China, the only way you could get there was to hitch a, hitch a ride on the opium boat. Right? So you see how the association between those two groups is almost impossible to, to separate. Even as a Christian, a missionary, even though the missionaries would get there and say, you know, we're against the opium trade, well, it's kind of hard for the, the, the native Chinese to disassociate that considering the fact that you hitched a ride here on the boat that brought us all these drugs that's killing all our people. It's very difficult for them to separate those two. So it made spreading the gospel very, very difficult, and they struggled to do so. So they struggled to separate the message of Christianity from the immorality that was imported by the British, right? So the great Protestant missionary to China, Griffith, John, that's eight, he's from 1831 to uh, 1912, once wrote that the Western involvement in the opium trade speaks more eloquently and convincingly to the Chinese mind against Christianity than the missionary can speak for it. So he was just speaking to how difficult it was to spread the gospel among the Chinese people because of their association with Christianity and opium trade together. That makes sense to you? Following? Following? Okay, good. Um, but this was only one event. This was one among many other events that complicated the Christian witness in China. The other one was the Taiping Rebellion. Taiping Rebellion. So in the late 1840s, um, there was a man named Hung Shiyushuang. Am I saying that right? Yes. Shi Yu Xuan. That's the way I'm saying it. I apologize. He was converted <clears throat> through a uh, through the ministry of a Baptist missionary in Hong Kong, and he established a Taiping, an organization called the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, which instituted uh, communal land policies, food quotas, gender separation and other very stringent uh, regulations. So at first, Western missionaries celebrated the, uh, the Taipings, um, 
and because it, it grew rapidly among the Chinese people. But by the time we get to 1852, um, when Taiping added, he, they started to add to scripture. They started to add, so it basically became what we know as syncretism, where they took Christian doctrine and started to add other elements like Confucianism and other like native Chinese folklore into Christianity kind of turned into this amalgamation, right? So, <clears throat> so initially the missionaries celebrated this. They saw Christianity as growing, but then eventually he started to um, introduce into Christianity things that were not orthodox teachings anymore. All right, so he wrote the book called the Book of Heaven, Com Heaven Commanded Edicts. It became clear that the Taiping were not Orthodox Christian at this point. Sheshuan had began to blend Christian teachings into other local beliefs, and he saw himself as a younger, the, the younger brother of Jesus Christ and divinely chosen by God with the mission of destroying the Qing dynasty, which he deemed as corrupt and non-Chinese. Now, obviously, you can see how this could be a problem for the government, right? This group, calling themselves Christian, have come to the conclusion that we need to overthrow the government. So, if you're a part of the Qing dynasty, this is clearly problematic for you, right? So, by the mid-1850s, the Taiping Heavy Kingdom had become not only a religious group, but a political and military group at this point. And so between 1851 and 1864, this group, the Taiping group, began what is known as the Taiping Rebellion against the Qing Dynasty. And there was this huge, vicious civil war. It in, um, cost the Chinese people between 20 and 30 million lives. So during this uh, rebellion, the Taiping Rebellion, 20 to 30 million Chinese people died. And so despite the initial success of this group, the, uh, the Taiping forces, what they did was they, they, uh, so they, they had some military success in this civil war, but because of internal divisions, uh, bad strategic choices and setbacks, and the French and British helped the, uh, the Qing dynasty to defeat them, they eventually, this rebellion was eventually put down and the, uh, the Qing dynasty eventually managed to regain control of the area, of the areas that the Taipings held. And they were eventually defeated completely by 1864. So all that means this is for many Chinese political leaders, the Taiping rebellion was a lesson in the danger of unregulated religion. Okay. And so perhaps even more so than the opium wars, the Taiping Rebellion became a significant obstacle to the advancement of the gospel in China, and especially of foreign missionaries being allowed to freely move and speak and teach in China. Okay, so you got the Taiping Rebellion and the opium war. So these things are all making it very difficult for native Chinese people, the Chinese government to want to allow foreign missionaries in, want to allow the gospel to be spread, Christianity to be spread among the Chinese people unregulated by the hands of the government. All of these are just adding to the difficulties in this. All right. Then <clears throat> we have Hudson Taylor. If you're following along on your handouts, Roman numeral number two, sub point four, Hudson Taylor. 
So by this time, after the, um, the Taiping Rebellion, a, um, Hudson Taylor, I'm sure you heard, some of us may have heard this name before. So by the time Hudson Taylor comes along, there have been 50 years of some sort of missionary activity in China. And then by, um, but nevertheless, by 1861, there were only 351 documented Chinese Protestant churches in China, right? All of whom were along these coastal cities that were made possible by the, the unequal treaties, right? So the inland of China was virtually untouched by Christian missionaries. And so <clears throat> that was about to change, however, because in part because of Hudson Taylor's work. So in 1854, during the Taiping Rebellion, Hudson Taylor arrived in Shanghai. In his first few years there, he took 18 preaching trips in the areas around Shanghai, and he did this often by himself. And so Hudson Taylor was not very popular among the other missionaries, in part because he made some very unpopular decisions to shed to do some things that other missionaries wouldn't do. So he, he would dress like Chinese people. He would wear their style of dress. He became more, he learned more of what was socially acceptable and unacceptable among the Chinese people and started to do those things. And he was looked upon, looked down upon for that, for one, that is one among other things that he did also. So six years later, when, um, so Hudson Taylor did this for about six years. He returned to England due to some health problems. He spent the next five years in England recruiting and preaching. And his goal was to get missionaries to, that were willing to not to just stay in the coastal cities, but to go into inland China, right? And in 1865, he founded the China Inland Mission. China Inland Mission. So this new organization, what it did was it embraced several policies that were unprecedented in the history of Christian missionary work at the time. So by being a faith mission, Hudson Taylor argued against the appeals for money, whether at a church or in person. So he mainly sent out, and he also mainly sent out May, uh, lay missionaries lay people as missionaries, not trained clergy, right? Not ordained clergy. He insisted on wearing native dress as a um, general policy, and Taylor accepted a large number of women as missionaries and sent some of them out into the countryside, into inland China alone, right? So that's unprecedented for, for a missionary to do that. He was one of the first people to do that. and um, And his work had an, an impact, it had an impact. So by 1880, the number of Chinese missionaries with the China Inland Missionary eclipsed the number of, of all of the other missionaries from every other group, whether they be Protestant or um, Roman Catholic, there were more missionaries just in the China in Inland Mission than there were of all of the other Protestant groups combined, okay? And by 1893, there were 1,323 known Protestant missionaries in China, 
And Taylor would spend most of his life in China despite the fact that he had very painful health challenges. And um, by the time his death approached, he was getting closer to his death, he returns to England again. And he insisted on returning to China one last time. And in June, on June 1st, 1905, he arrived in Changshai, China, and at 73 years of age, this was at 73 years of age, and then he died two years later at 75. So he did great work there in China. Um, though at the time, it didn't, you know, many of the other missionary groups didn't agree with what he did, but the Lord used that man mightily. So uh, moving on in the history, we have the Boxer Rebellion. That's sub point number five I'm under. We're on, um, still on point two, first page of your handout. The next is the Boxer Rebellion. So <clears throat> as the number of foreign missionaries in China at this point began to surge because of the work of um, Hudson Taylor and other groups, um, many in China increasingly saw indigenous Christian converts as dangerous and unpatriotic. So many people in, in, among the Chinese and the Chinese government saw Chinese converts as unpatriotic, not sympathetic to China, but more sympathetic to foreign nations, okay? So by early 1899, a group of locals called the Boxers began vandalizing towns as they pro would proclaim this when they would do so, exalt the dynasty, destroy the foreigners. That was what they would chant. So as, these box, as the Boxer Rebellion spread, foreign missionaries and Christian converts became targets of physical attacks. Many, both in the West and in China, faulted the missionaries for the violence. Then, as a result of this violence, foreign troops, both French and British, they were brought in, eventually stopped the violence, but that was not before this Boxer Rebellion had killed about 200 foreign missionaries and about 30,000 Chinese Christians. So they were targeting both missionaries and Chinese Christians at the same time. So the Boxer Rebellion would sadly turn out to be a foretaste of how the Chinese government and Chinese attitudes and opposition towards Christianity were changing. So it's a summary of that's a summary so far of, you know, uh, foreign missionary activity in China. So do we have any questions so far? Yes, ma'am. I'd like to add. You'd like to add? Uh, Hudson Taylor, when his uh, China Inland Mission eventually became the Overseas Missionary Fellowship. Okay. And then they went, some of them went to the Philippines and they established the, um, the way they reached So did, did everybody hear that? Okay, I'll repeat it. So the China Inland Mission Group, tell me again, I got it. It was a lot. I can't remember all of that. Became the Overseas Missionary Fellowship. So the China Inland Mission Group became 
the overseas missionary fellowship and they went eventually reached Manila, Philippines. And uh, they published a lot of literature. They published a lot of yeah. Christian literature. And they reached the intellectual, the students of the And reached the intellectual group, the yeah. students of the Philippines. And that's how Miss Cora was introduced to Christianity? No, no, no. no? It's just that then to my growth. Oh, it helped her to grow as a Christian, this publishing arm in the Philippines helped her to grow as a Christian. She was introduced to these books in the sick, I don't want to date you. In the 60s and 70s. And they're still there. And they're still there today as a result of the China Inland Mission Group. All right. Alliance Church is, is related to this group as well. Okay, that's a good piece of information. Thank you for that, I appreciate that. So you see how this is good that we have older saints in the church that could tell us these things, right? People from the older, the older I didn't say old, I said older. <laughs> All right, thank you for that information. That was, that was really, really good and helpful. All right, so any other questions? No? Okay. All right. So um, the so that was about foreign missionary work o overview. Very, very broad overview. Obviously, you know, if you want to read more information, I don't have the time to get into a lot of specifics, but I just wanted to give you some kind of broad overview. Next, we're going to move on to Roman numeral number two. Um, no, it should be three. Sorry. I apologize. I copied this terribly. <laughs> it's Roman numeral number three should be indigenous Christian movements in China, indigenous Christian movements. So <clears throat> the same month that, so among these indigenous Christian movements, the two big ones that are, you know, most prominent would be uh, Jansung and Watchman Nee. These would be the two biggest probably most influential indigenous Chinese Christian movements. Um, I'm certain most of us have heard something about Watchman Nee. Yes, and he was one of the writers for OMF. Okay, so, just, just yes, thank you. Uh, the same month that the Boxer Rebellion ended, Chinese, uh, China's greatest evangelist of the 20th century, John Sung, was born in Fujiang, China, Fujiang, yes, Fujiang, China. He was gifted academically. He uh, ended up traveling at some point to the United States where he, he earned a PhD in chemistry from Ohio State University in 1926. Then he went on to study at Union Theological Seminary in New York City on a scholarship. And between the faculty at Union and the work of Harry Emerson Fosdick, um, John Sung became convinced of Protestant liberalism, okay? But eventually after a, an emotional, psychological, and spiritual crisis coupled with an attendance to uh, revival meetings, 
Sung rejected Protestant liberalism, burned all of his theology books, and called them the books of demons. He confronted Harry Emerson Fosdick and told in this document that he told him, you are of the devil and you made me lose my Christian faith. So then, but then around 19, sometime in 1927, he returned, Sung returned to China. And in 31, a Chinese Christian man named Andrew Gee assembled what is called the Bethel Worldwide Evangelistic Band. Bethel Worldwide Evangelistic Band, B-A-N-D band, and made John Sung the lead evangelist of this group. Right? So, so this group began to travel throughout China and Sung would, would preach these very emotional, uh, emotionally intense and theatrical sermons and it captivated very, very many Chinese people. So one of the examples is, is that he would illustrate the biblical story of Naaman's healing of leprosy after uh, uh, going into the water seven times. You know the story in the Bible? Okay. Well, what he would do is when he would talk about the story, he would jump on and off the stage seven times as a way to reenact. So this is what I mean when I say he was very theatrical in his preaching. That's just an example of how he would do things like that. And so um, this John Sung's Bethel Band became to be known as the Bethel Band Revival Movement. And um, it drew heavily from um, Pentecostalism, American Pentecostalism, and it often would um, feature these uh, miraculous healings. So there was an example that is given here of Sung at one of his missionary uh, revival meetings. There was, and um, so this young man had supposedly had been healed of blindness. And so a doctor interviewed the young man, and the doctor here reports that um, that Dr. Sung told him that he must say that I can see. Otherwise, it would be a lack of faith and he would never actually be able to see. So that's just one of the reports that came out of that group. And um, yet, nevertheless, Bethel Band's healing and evangelistic services grew in popularity. And between 1931 through 1935, they visited 133 cities and held almost 3,500 revival meetings. Right. And one year and in one year alone, its members preached. This is not John Sung by himself, but this is the entire group. It's reported that this entire group had preached to over four hundred and twenty five thousand Chinese in 13 different provinces, 65 cities and reported to have 18 over 18,000 conversion conversions. OK, so that's the report. And at the same time this was going on, there was another Chinese pastor named Watchman Nee. And he was forming a fellowship of churches which was called for holiness and warnings against denominationism. Denominal, denominationalism. Okay? So he, uh, Watchman Nee was born into a Christian family. He was converted as a teenager at an evangelistic meeting in 1920. And the interesting thing about this was this evangelistic meeting that Watchman Nee was converted at was held by a well-known Chinese, the first well-known, the first well-known Chinese 
female evangelist, Dora Yu, right? So in the following years that followed, Watchman Nee became enamored with the Plymouth Brethren. Anybody know who the Plymouth Brethren is? You ever heard of the Plymouth Brethren? Okay, so the Plymouth Brethren, they are, you ever heard of the Higher Life, Kiswick? No. Have you heard of this? Okay. All right. So the Plymouth Brethren are very much associated with this Kiswick movement, this higher life movement. You ever heard of Azusa Street? Yeah. You ever heard of Azusa? Okay. So, all right. I'm going to give you a quick history lesson. So Azusa Street is birthed by a man named Rodney Parham who came from Kansas. What's the pastor name there in Kansas again? Parham. Wait, no, Parham was the one in L.A. I can't remember the other guy's name. Anyway, he came from a church in Brown, Brown in Kansas. Uh, Brown came, was, was sent out by the Keswick movement in, in the United, from the United Kingdom. So they're very heavily um, tied into um, their Pentecostals. Some of them reject the doctrine of the Trinity and very uh, much into dispensationalism and end times teaching, but very, very heavily um, tied to what we know now today as the prosperity gospel. Okay, so it kind of, over the course of the, the years and years and years, it started to morph and change and, and all this. And that is what, what, we, what we would consider the prosperity gospel was kind of birthed out of this group, these groups. Yes, sir. Yeah. Sure. Just a nation. Just a matter of fact. Yep. Church of God in Christ. Yep. Which, um, again, is not necessarily heretical. It depends on the church. Right. But then one is Pentecostal, the way we know it today, with certain groups in Kansas and Texas came out of that. Right. So, yeah. So he said the three main is Assemblies of God, Church of God in Christ, and Pentecostals. But there's actually more than that. One is Pentecostals or Apostolics. There's actually more than that. It's actually three more because of uh, segregation. So there was a split in Azusa Street because, okay, so Azusa Street is very popular. It was in the newspaper and everything. And so at the time when it was happening, Parham is, is black. So there's this huge movement that's going on. It's being reported by the newspaper. It's supposed to be all this spiritual activity, but it was a mixed congregation. That's a no-no in the United States in, in the 1930s. You, you just can't do that, right? You definitely can't have a black man leading it, right, in the 1930s. So what started happening was they started catching a lot of heat, not only for the teachings, but also because they were not segregated. So when, and then they had another um, issue was over the Trinity. So a big portion of those members so you had a split between the Trinitarians and the non-Trinitarians, okay? Which had, where you get the Church of God in Christ, one is Pentecostals, and PAW, right? Am I thinking of that right? Pentecostals of Simmons of America, they're non-Trinitarian, right? I can't remember. Don't quote me on that last one. But there was a split between the Trinitarians and the non-Trinitarians. And then those three split into other groups black and white. That makes sense to you? So you, that you had from Azusa Street, from Azusa Street, 
from Kansas to the Kiswick movement, you had all these denominations come from, but they all come from Kiswick. That makes sense to you? All right. So the Plymouth Brethren are associated with Kiswick. So Kiswick sent people everywhere, Canada, United States, different parts of the United States. So the Plymouth Brethren are birthed out of Kiswick. And so is Azusa Street. Does that make sense to you? Everybody follow that? It's just a different branch that went to a different part of the country. But they're all, they all have the same foundational origin in Kiswick. Okay? And so <clears throat> they're Schofield. So, okay, so in the United States now, most people by default are dispensational. Right? They, you just, most people just are, not because they've actually studied it, it's just because most churches are by default in the United States. Okay? And the reason that is, is in large part due to the Schofield Study Bible. Anybody know what the Schofield Study Bible is? Okay, so the Schofield Study Bible, was, when it was published, it had a lot of preaching no, um, commentary notes in it, and it was widely distributed over the United States. And Schofield is dispensational. So most people had that Bible at the time, a lot of lay pastors, a lot of preachers, and a lot of the congregations had this Bible, and by default, when they couldn't understand something, well, what do you do? You read the commentary. What did the commentary say? Commentary says this, boom, you got all these dispensationalists. Okay, historically, though, that's not how the church always had been. So all that to say this, that's in the United States. All that to say this, okay, is, is that um, Watchman Nee was very heavily associated with this stream of Christianity that was birthed out of the Kiswick movement. Okay, he was very enamored with those. He read them a lot. He, he got a lot of his doctrine and understanding of Christianity from that group. Make sense to you? Okay. So in 1928, he uh, published his best-known book, The Spiritual Man, right, which drew heavily from mysticism uh, and specifically a mystic named Jessie Penn Lewis and her work in a book called The Soul and the Spirit, right? So by the early 1930s, Watchman Nee's group began to grow significantly and very rapidly in China. And um, he would, you, and so he had a very elevated position because of the growth of this group. So he used his position to denounce denominational, denominations, right? So, um, which he saw, he saw denominations as an unhelpful import from West, um, Western missionaries. That makes sense to you? So he saw that denominationalism was a scourge on Christianity and that um, that only happened because of Western influence. So he talked down about this very, very badly about denominations. So his response to denominationalism was to start his own denomination. I find that hilarious. Anyways, <laughs> ironically, about the same time, a group of churches founded by me became to be uh, called the Little Flock. They called themselves the Little Flock. And they began to spread quickly. And by 1933, Ni reported that there were uh, over 100 assemblies of the Little Flock. And he continued to preach and publish. 
and that mission that ministry work began to expand even through the disruption of World War II and China's war with Japan. And by 1952, Watchman Nee was arrested by the Chinese government. By this time, the government was no longer um, an empire. It was the Chinese communist government. And he spent the last 20 years of his life in prison. Okay? So that's Watchman Nee and John Sung. Those are indigenous movements. And then you have what's called Roman numeral number three on your handout, the self-patriotic movement, the self-patriotic movement. Now, shortly after the war, World War II ended in around uh, in the mid-1940s, a brutal civil war in China broke out. On one side, there were the nationalists. On the other side, it was the communists. And the communists were led by uh, Mao Zedong. Um, eventually, the communists won, and in um, October, First, 1949, Mao proclaimed China to be the People's Republic of China, okay? So like the emperors of earlier dynasties, the communist government insisted on monitoring all religious activity and required that all churches re register with the government so that events like the Taiping Rebellion helped to provide context for why they made these regulations, right? So what does that mean for Christianity in China then? So in May of 1950, there was a Protestant named Y.T. Wu and 18 other Chinese church leaders traveled to Beijing for a series of meetings with the Chinese premier. And out of these discussions, the, uh, the Christians there acknowledged the history of the uh, Taiping Rebellion and the Boxer Rebellion and these other clashes with the foreign, with the government and foreigners and Christianity. And so what they did was they developed and produced what's called the Christian Manifesto. Anybody ever heard of this, the Christian Manifesto? Okay. So in, here's a line from the Christian Manifesto. It says, recognize clearly, recognizing clearly the evils that have been wrought in China by imperialism and, rec and to recognize the fact that in the past imperialism had made, made use of Christianity, we urge to purge imperialistic influences from within Christianity itself and be vigilant against imperialism, especially American imperialism in its plot to use religion in fostering the growth of reactionary forces, right? So uh, in 1951, Y.T. Wu assembled this group of Protestants in Beijing and they started what became known as the Three Self-Patriotic Movement in China. And, as a, and, they, and they formed this as a formal institution. And so this phrase, Three Self, dates back to some of the original three missionary goals stated back in the 1800s which was self-governance, self-support, uh, self-support, self and self-propagation, self-propagation. So while um, this group may seem religious in, in appearance, this group, the Three Self-Patriotic Movement, was highly political and had political goals to keep China Chinese, okay? Keep China Chinese. And um, in fact, the initial council that launched the organization had overtly communist political aims 
and it called itself, the first meeting of this group called itself the Preparatory Council of the China Christian Resistance Against America to Help Korea. So, very, doesn't sound very religious to me. Sounds very political, nevertheless. Um, with the launch of the Three Self-Patriotic Movement as a government-sanctioned Christian group, the government began to accelerate its persecution of any Christian leaders outside of this group, right? So by 1955, the vast majority of these other non-Three Self-Patriotic churches were either in jail, subject to um, severe public persecution, or left China altogether. They just fled the country altogether. So uh, generally, the reasons why they were uh, persecuted, they were accused of things that were non-religious in, in nature, like fraud or disloyalty to the government in an attempt to... Um, and they did this in an attempt... The government would do this so that they would not be accused of squashing religious freedom. So if I go and, so if the government goes and persecute all the churches, they don't charge them with, um, we're not persecuting you because you're preaching Christian doctrine. They would persecute them for things like fraud or disloyalty to the government and different things like that so, they, so that they could give off the air of still being, you still have religious freedom here. That make sense to you? Okay. So as a result, by the mid-1950s, every major indigenous Chinese church movement had now become under, either under government persecution or basically an arm of the Chinese government. All right? So I'm going to have to move on because I'm running out of time here. So basically what ends up happening is, is that uh, Mao, he dies. And then as we fast forward, China has kind of opened up back again to missionaries from the West, and many churches start to reopen apart from this uh, three-shelf movement, three-self movement. And, but what they realize is, is that, okay, so during this three-self movement, what starts to happen is, is that uh, uh, there are, there's no, no real number that anybody can document, but house churches become very popular. So the gospel begins to spread underground in China, right? And there's no way to document this because obviously it's illegal. But what happens is after uh, Mao Zedong dies and, and is, uh, China becomes somewhat open back up to missionary work, they start to go to places to do missionary work and they find out it's Christians there and it's churches there. And so what's, so what's going on is that they, they went underground, very many house churches, nobody knows the number, but it was significant. So, the, the, I, so what, what we thought from our perspective was when the communist government took over and they started to persecute a bunch of churches became arms of the Chinese government. And we thought that the rest of the churches got crushed. In reality, what happened was they went underground. And God's people were always there, 
just undercover. That makes sense to you? So the gospel was spreading. I can't give you a number. Nobody can give you a number because nobody knows. Right? Nevertheless, what that, what that means is, is that God is good to his people. Amen. The promise that Jesus gave that the gates of hell will never prevail against his church, this is evidence of that. Despite the fact that the government tried to crush the church there, they lost. They didn't. Right? So, just real quick, there was a missionary tells this story about how one of the ways that the government would persecute a, a Christians in a, I can't remember the name of this town. I'll, I'll give it to you if you, I'll, I'll bring it back next week. They made all, they would uh, publicly beat all of the pastors there and then they made them all garbage men, right? Well, that's like the dumbest thing you can do because you're sending pastors to people's houses every day, right? So if I'm a pastor and I'm coming to your house every day, well, naturally what's gonna happen? So I suspect, uh, this is just purely anecdotal, I suspect it's things like that that cause the gospel to spread. You know what I mean? Things like that that cause the gospel to spread. So they're no longer situated in a particular church, but God in his sovereignty uh, um, ordained that persecution to happen. Now you got a group of pastors every day out in the community going from house to house to house to house to house. I suspect that those are ways in which that that's anecdotal evidence of how the gospel spread throughout that nation. And it was because of the persecution that was inflicted by the Chinese government. And in spite of what the devil was trying to do to crush the church, God is much wiser than we could ever be. And in fact, is, that is the reason why these things spread. All right? So I'm going to, I'll come back and finish this next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your kindness to us. We thank you that you are a great, good, and wise God, and that you do, do things beyond our purview, O oh Lord. Thank you, Lord, for um, helping, causing us to remember these things through history and, and growing in our love and acknowledgement of your great name. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.